You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach, ITK. How are you, David? Giles, I'm as well as could be expected, thanks. And I trust you're well and I trust our listeners are well, whatever they may be doing while they listen to this. And I trust our special guest this week is uh, also well. Yes, I'd like to introduce uh, Stian Reklev from Carbon Pulse, based in Beijing. Stian, how are you? Hi, guys. I'm good. Thanks very much for having me on. Look, Stian, we haven't actually talked for many, many years. We we were both regulars at the uh, international, the UN-sponsored climate talks, I think, all the way from Bali to Copenhagen, all the way through to Paris, when um, I stopped going, thinking that the planet had been saved. Um, (laughs) Stian, are you still still going to these conferences? I am, actually, yeah. That's... uh, God. What's a, I'm, look, I'm thinking maybe I might go to the, um, not this year in Chile, I might go to the one in Glasgow next year just to see what Brexit looks like, what Scottish independence look, <laughs> looks like and see if I can see a Rangers-Celtic match. But um, tell us a bit about life, tell us a bit about Carbon Pulse and why you're based in Beijing. Well, so Carbon Pulse is a, is a global news service for the, for the international carbon markets. You know, so we have various emissions trading schemes and offset programs and carbon taxes around the world. So we cover all of those. And I'm, um, I'm based in Beijing to be responsible for our coverage in Asia and the Pacific. Stian, and so uh, has the business been, been, been growing? How, I mean, I would have thought just reporting on carbon news is, is, is a pretty tough business, but I guess the European carbon market at least is quite large now. It is, yeah. I mean, it's actually been going really well for us. And so, you know, the European carbon prices have tripled or almost quadrupled over the last three years or so after they, um, after the European Commission got all the post-2020 stuff out. And then you have stuff uh, going on in North America as well with California and, um, and that Northeast Coast program. So, so there's a lot going on, even though um, not too much in Australia. No, that's exactly right. Um, I'm just wondering, I'm just fascinated by the Europe carbon market experience. I mean, there's been various sort of um, sort of uh, sectorial um, carbon prices imposed by various countries. But um, you well, obviously, um, as, as you said, the carbon price has quadrupled or trebled and quadrupled over recent years. And we're starting to see that now have a real big impact in Germany, where I think the amount of coal generation has actually fallen 20%, um, simply because the carbon market because it's grown, it's actually pro- is now starting to properly price coal out of the market, which I guess was its original intention. Absolutely, yeah. That is what it's meant to be doing, although I, I don't think it's necessarily only the carbon price doing that. I mean, the EU has got a lot of other um, climate-related policies in place as well, and, and, uh, and this is a big domestic political issue in Germany for, for a number of reasons. But at least over the last two, three years... The European emissions trading scheme has become a lot more efficient in um, in uh, uh, putting a noticeable price on on carbon rather than you know a few years back when it was seven eight nine euros per ton. Yeah. Is is that because of the um, cheap overhangs have been removed, or because they've actually finally got some decent emissions target in, or combination of both? A combination of both, but mostly um, mostly the, these mechanisms they they put in place to to remove these historical surplus 
that they've been dragging along all the ways all the time since the um, financial crisis, basically. I think the problem with uh, carbon markets pricing always, is why I sometimes prefer a carbon tax, is the difficulty the government has in setting the, the right level of uh, carbon emissions for the economy. But uh, uh, Carbon Pulse isn't really in the business of making forecasts uh, about the price or, or anything, though, are you? No, we, we primarily do news. I mean, we have some analysis um, stuff going on, particularly for the North American markets. But in terms of uh, price forecasting, we don't do very much. We, we mostly cover and explain the news. And so I guess uh, for me, Europe is already very well on the track. I mean, no doubt there'll be lots of, and I don't see that uh, Europe as the problem for global warming. Maybe it was historically, but not going forward. I see the number one issue uh, for the world in, in, in marginal terms as being Asia in general and China in specifically. And you're based in Beijing. What can you tell me about how how the Talk to me a little bit just about what you see as the main issues in China and, and, and the sort of pro and con forces. Well, the Chinese government has been quite interested in, um, in the climate issue for, for well over a decade, actually. I mean, they, they really started getting involved back in the good old days of the, of the CDM. And they have, at least at times, made it a, a political priority since then, often going hand in hand with the uh, massive air pollution um, problems they have domestically because obviously the a lot of the air pollution has the same sources as the as the climate change um, problems with uh, with all these coal-fired power plants and massive manufacturing facilities going on so they are in they are basically in the middle of a massive process of trying to shift to to more clean ways of, of produce producing energy and and um, rely less on manufacturing for their economic growth. However, it is going very, very slowly. And I, I think we've seen over the past year and a half that when the economy now is starting to falter a little bit and they've gotten involved in that nasty trade war with the US, that the government tends to maybe fall back a little bit on the, on the old, to the old ways and maybe put the whole cleaning up the economy uh, thing a, a little bit on the on the back burner. So so you've seen t tendencies to you know emissions starting to increase again now, which is obviously not a very good sign. Not not at all. And um, um, I guess does it, what what's the thing that us outsiders should focus on? It's easy enough to look at the amount of electricity generation, and you can even see the carbon uh, outputs to it with a bit of a lag. But for me, it's more about where the internal policy dynamics and how how seriously China's going to take it. See, I was reading some of the half-yearly reports from the big state-owned generators, and those, and we can also look at um, uh, Next Coal, or what used to be Coal Swarm, and they point out there's still an awful lot of coal generation uh, on the books in China. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to understand how serious the um, government is about getting back in control of that and, and and, and, and who you see, I guess, even as the main sort of bodies that will make those decisions, government bodies or people? Well, it's, China is a pretty complicated um, country to look at because it's, it's, it's very big. So, on, you know, you have 
a central government in the middle trying to do one thing, and then you have more than 30 provincial governments whose interests may be not be in line with the central government's um, <clears throat> interest. So you often see a situation, for example, where you have the central government trying to, to implement various environmental or energy policies, and then the provincial governments pretty much ignoring it because they they don't want <laughs> you know they have um, they have jobs to take care of and, and and stuff like that and they don't necessarily always want to implement the policies coming out of Beijing so and also within the central government you have you have you know some of the ministries and government agencies working really hard maybe to to reduce emissions and 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 clean up the uh, clean up production uh, means whereas other um, powerful ministries may be more heavily invested into the into the current way of, of, of doing things and and you know because obviously the, there's a big power structure there hmm. and um, yeah Christine, well, I mean we've got now got a carbon market I remember going back to Paris and in fact way back you know before then the Chinese were sort of talking about um, setting up a carbon market so explain to us exactly what they have set up and how's it working and, and, and what the plans for the future are well, they, they haven't set up anything yet. So they have been talking about this since, since 2013, and they were going to do it in 2017. Um, then it was delayed because they, they didn't manage to finalize it. It now looks as if it is finally going to start in the second half of uh, next year, the, the Chinese National Emissions Trading Scheme. Um, initially, they were going to cover like you know 10 different sectors. That has been watered down to just one so so when it launches next year it's going to cover electricity generators but you know that's going to cover about three to three and a half billion tons of co2 so it's going to be pretty big in terms of of the amount of carbon it it regulates and then they have an, uh, another handful of sectors that they're going mm. to add over the next few years once they're happy with the way things are running so why did they backtrack on some of the other sectors? Were they having similar discussions that we were having in um, in Australia about sort of you know impacts on industry and things like that? And um, if I can ask a second question now, once the electricity carbon price is set, do we expect it to have bite and to change things? Oh, that's very very hard questions there, Giles. Um, so why why did they remove the other um, sectors? I think mostly because of uh, data issues. So. Like data is is always a very very difficult thing in in China because there's so much fake reporting um, uh, going on. So they've they've had a lot of problems, a lot of problems getting proper um, historical data to base an allocation process of CO2 permits on. Uh, and I in the end I think they just found it very difficult to go with many sectors at the same time. So they, they start with the electricity sectors because they think that's the easiest and then they'll, they'll take it from there. As to whether it'll bite from the start, I, I, I genuinely don't think so. And I don't think that they necessarily intended to either. I think they basically just want to get a market up and running. And then once they have that, they can start fixing it as, as they go along. I, I imagine the, the carbon price in China is going to be pretty low initially, and it's not going to do very much. Actually, earlier this week, the first draft allocation plan was out, signaling that basically it's going to add to the cost of some of the oldest and dirtiest coal plants, um, whereas, more in a, whereas more 
efficient and modern coal plants actually going away, going to get away without paying any costs at all to begin with. So, so you know, they're they're starting, you know, very unambitiously, but then we'll see where uh, where it goes from there. And so, Stian, I think you mentioned that. Um, well, tell us a little bit about the, the what you know about the mechanics at the moment. I think you were talking about rather than an absolute cap, um, uh, it's now going to be. It may be emission intensity, and I, should I take it from your comments you just made that newer generators will be under the proposed intensity standard, and some old generators won't be. Well. So for all the years that they've been planning this emissions trading scheme, they have always said that, that when the market starts, it's going to be an absolute cap on CO2 emissions for those companies that are involved. However, last week it emerged that now that's not going to be the case at all. So they're basically going to do like New Zealand has done in its emissions trading scheme, which, which means that they're going to allocate allowances based on the intensity, carbon intensity of the, of the included uh, plants. And, and as long as, you know, as long as they stick to that benchmark level, they, uh, you know, and, and increase their production, they can increase emissions indefinitely, in theory. Um, but it's very confusing, because earlier this week, they, they circulated not one, but two different draft allocation plans. Now, one of them, and the one that we think is the plan they have in mind, are setting this benchmark for coal-fired power plants at 0.848 tons of CO2 per megawatt hour of, of production, which means that um, they will basically get 0.848 CO2 permits per megawatt hour of electricity they generate, which is close to the standard of the efficiency standard of, uh, of coal-fired power plants in Germany. So that's quite all right. However, there is also a second document which sets the benchmark at 1.05 tons of CO2 per megawatt hour, which would be, you know, very, very poor indeed. So we'll... That's right. That's brown coal standard. Every, every generator in Australia outside of Victoria coal generator could meet that. That's the second number, but 0.84 uh, would probably, I don't know. I, don't no, I, think, I, think, I think that would blow just about every Australian coal generator out of the market, um, uh, or at least impose a price on them anyway. Yeah, close to it. Uh, but the new generation in China is, so, I mean, you wouldn't have off the top, you wouldn't know necessarily how much of uh, genera coal generation in China would meet that 0.84 uh, threshold? Um, no, I, I don't. Um, the thing is that they, they released this on the, on the evening of their um, national holiday, which lasts for one week. So they just put this out and then everyone went on holiday for a week. So it's, it's been very hard to find someone. Why, why <laughs> someone. don't we have weekly holidays? <laughs> well, it's a, bit like, it's a bit like the Australian government releasing emissions data on, on December 23rd, isn't it? Oh, they wouldn't do that, would they? <laughs> I think a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of those things are leaked on those days for exactly that reason. There used to be the Sunday news cycle, but anyway. Uh... <laughs> Look, um, Stian, I'm kind of interested in finding out what else is happening in international carbon markets, and then I'd love to come back, come back to Australia, actually, because... Um, if it, now, let's start with Australia because, um, and then go and, and find out what else is happening overseas. Because you sort of saying in the preamble before we, um, we started recording that um, Australia, of course, does have a carbon market, which may be a shock to some people here because it's almost a banned work. So tell us what we've got and how is it viewed from the outside looking in? Well, of course, you have, you have the safeguard mechanism, which has been in place for, uh, for a couple of years now. And, you know, it does 
all the things that a carbon market is supposed to do. It, you know, it sets benchmarks or CO2 caps on, on a lot of uh, big emitting facilities. And then... Pretty lousy ones, though. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it, like, it has all the, it has all the um, elements in place to be... And looks like a carbon mechanism. market, smells yeah. like a carbon market, must be a carbon market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but in, you know, it's basically the political will to set efficient targets, which I think w- is what, what Labour went to, went to the May elections um, saying that they would, but then you know, they lost the election, so, um, so there that goes. Uh, but, but Australia does have a carbon market, it's just not a very efficient one because the benchmarks in the safeguard mechanism, you know, they're just set so generously that basically no one is having a problem to meet those targets at all. Mm. And what about the US then? California, you mentioned as well, has got a carbon market. And I think, um, does that still, that northeast regional area still exist, that, that, that market there? And is, is it effective? I think it, it used to include a couple of US states and some Canadian provinces. Oh, yeah. So, so they have two markets in the US. One is the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in, in, uh, in the northeast US. They have um, nine or ten states participating, um, with Virginia on the you know Virginia wanting to to join it, but there's some <clears throat> some issues going on in the in the state senate there. But but probably over the next couple of years, Virginia will um, will um, will join that market. That's only for uh, only for electricity producers. Is it effective? Mm, I, I don't know. They have a relatively low carbon price and they also have like a bit of a historical surplus going on but you know some analysts say that it is contributing to to reducing emissions in the region uh, i'm not a I'm not an expert on reggie though so, so i'm not entirely sure then on the west coast, west coast you have california which has a <clears throat> more or less economy-wide market and they have a link to quebec in canada uh, Ontario was linked as well, but then when Doug Ford was, was elected Premier of, uh, of Ontario, he immediately pulled them out again. So it's California and Quebec at the moment, and then you have like, Oregon and Washington states doing some attempts to, to put cap-and-trade programs through their state legislators so that they can join this market, but so far unsuccessfully. Do you see a time that we might have a global carbon price? Because, I mean, I, I don't see the economists arguing that anything else could be as effective as a carbon price. It still seems to be the lay-down misere for actually being reasonably efficient. But, of course, it's politically challenging in Australia and in many other places. So when you're sort of thinking about the long-term future of it, I mean, do you think that a global carbon price is something that um, we may dream of for ages but never actually really occur? Or, or how do you see it transpiring? I can't really see it like a like a global market where every country or most countries in the world are regulated under the same carbon market with with similar caps and and everyone's paying the same carbon price. I don't think that's very realistic at all <clears throat> for you know at least thirty years and by then we should be at net zero and have no more allowances to trade anyway so so but i, I you know I, I I think you can see the emergence of bigger regional ones. Uh, so, for example, in Asia, you have China setting up an, a national market. South Korea already has one. Japan is sort of kind of thinking about it. You have New Zealand going on. You know, they've been showing interest in, in talking to China and South Korea about potential links. You have India and Indonesia and Vietnam and Thailand all looking at various forms of, of carbon pricing models at a pretty limited um, uh, level at the moment, but you know everyone's got to start somewhere. So I, I think, I think it's more likely that you see maybe something. You know, you have something in China that 
might at some stage link somehow to something in Southeast Asia, maybe South Korea and Japan and, and New Zealand, whereas Europe will do Europe and then North America will do North America. Mexico is setting up an emissions trading scheme now as well, so we'll see how that goes. Yeah, and I guess uh, if, China, if you can show uh, any, any country how they can make some money out of it, uh, it'll get a lot more push. But I wanted to ask about another question. Uh, um, uh, Australia is a very large exporter of coal, uh, I think uh, the largest or second largest, and of course we're also extremely large exporter of iron ore, which goes into steel, which uses a lot of coke. Um, um, and so for all of the, um, uh, and our, basically these sectors are by and large owned by international investors and, and domestic investors, and there's been a lot of discussion in Australia about scope, what, three emissions, that is the uh, carbon emissions from the uh, end or intermediate use of the product when it's used to burn electricity in China or make or, or steel. Uh, I guess my question is, um, uh, is there any sort of carbon market or thinking about scope three emissions or is that get come up as a point for discussion in, in some of the stuff you read, particularly in China or Asia? Not not particularly. It's certainly not as uh, as directly as you've seen in some of these recent court or these uh, policy decisions in, in New South Wales but it's you know it's it's clear though if um, you know if a Chinese company buys coal from Australia and then they have to pay a carbon price when they burn that coal you know that makes it less attractive for them to to buy that coal for Australia and you know logically if the, if the Chinese economy works in a you know slightly logical way then they should be looking at uh, at alternatives to importing that Australian coal um, but then you know I'm I, I'm not sure exactly how high the the Chinese CO2 price would have in for this to actually become a real issue for Australian coal uh, coal exporters though no it's very hard from uh, first blush to see how how scope three emissions uh, are going to be managed or priced or, but I do see that it is a big emerging issue and uh, as rated as such by the management of these companies in, in Australia. And so, uh, you know, in markets, wherever there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm sure something will emerge, but I just, it doesn't seem to have got there yet. Yeah, no, but, you know, obviously, it, it, you know, it is headed in that direction. So, you know, there's no question about mm. that. I'm just wondering, just more general question to sort of finish off um, this discussion. Um, you know, we heard a lot in Australia about um, the United, the recent United Nations climate um, session. You know, the United UN Secretary General called for countries to come and make commitments. Now, about 70 countries were invited. I didn't actually hear a lot. That was very tangible, and I think there's a bit of frustration about that. And of course, there was a big raucous about Greta Thunberg. And in Australia, there was a great disappointment that uh, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison didn't even bother turning up. What was the view from China or from you sitting in Beijing and monitoring both the China news and also the international news from there? What sort of perspective of that whole thing did you get? Well, I, th I think most people I've spoken with about about that New York thing is that it's, you know, it's, it's a general sense of, of disappointment. There were, you know, some smaller nations making some new pledges and you have some companies that did you know announce new stuff which is all very good but but none of the none of the big emitters at all came up with any new policy or new target or or anything i think that was as expected and hopefully you know they're maybe keeping the cards a little bit close to their chest and maybe as um 
as that Glasgow conference uh, in December 2020 gets closer, that maybe some of them will come up with, with something. But, but that, that UN session the other week was, was a massive failure, really. There's no other way to, to look mm. at it, as far as I can see. And, and, and are people like, um, you know, these more radical players and these, um, you know, the sort of the more visible activism, activism, I think I'm still thinking of Greta Thunberg on one hand and Extinction Rebellion on another. Do you think that they're actually having much impact at all? Um, do you think that's where we need to head in the future? Um, That's a tricky one, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> From I'm, a carbon market writer. <laughs> I mean, you know, so you have a situation where it's very, very clear that the world is doing nowhere near enough to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So Some everyone, people are going to get pretty angry and frustrated about it. Of course, yeah. And then everyone who sort of like does something to increase the um, uh, attention around this is a good thing, whether that is, you know, Greta Thunberg or whether that is, you know, the assistant CEO in a paper factory in Finland or whoever it is. I mean, the more people who get annoyed and do something about this, um, uh, the better. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, Donald Trump or Scott Morrison or whoever is going to do more on climate just because Greta Thunberg says so. But, but you know, if you can, like, get a popular movement going with, with loads and loads of young people involved and, and if, if, if they manage to keep that engagement until it's actually time to go to the polls, well, maybe they can do it, maybe they can make a change. Yeah. Look, um, Stian, it's been really great talking to you. Um, just hang on to the line for a bit because um, I'm just going to wrap up with um, David. And um, David, I'm just going to thank our sponsors, um, Evergen and Solaray Energy, uh, for their ongoing support. But David, um, really interesting to talk to Stian actually about sort of the position there and the fact that carbon markets do exist and they're doing something at least, if, uh, even if that could be global. But back here in Australia, a couple of things very noteworthy, I thought, um, over the last um, over the last week, and um, most of them seem to be centred around Transgrid. One is something that you put um, um, told me about, which was the um, the idea of a battery as virtual transmission, and this is sort of a um, going to be, you know, this. We've, we've obviously you've talked a lot about build, the need to build and upgrade, build new transmission links and upgrade existing ones, and the thought would be, well, it would be the traditional sort of equipment, but um, it was remarkable how close battery storage has come in the latest transcript assessment of the links between New South Wales and Queensland. And um, I don't know what you think, but it suggests to me that sometime down the future when other upgrades are planned, maybe battery storage will be able to compete. Well, it competes on voltage uh, stability issues, I think, uh, rather than on actually providing new actual capacity. As I understand it from talking to Andrew Kingsmill, and I don't understand it, um, uh, really, uh, that the line between Queensland and New South Wales is constrained uh, sometimes by the physical capacity and sometimes uh, by the actual stability that, that happens. And it's where the batteries can really help with the stability. But uh, you also wrote, Giles, uh, uh, about the letter that Transgrid had sent to uh, AEMC and we also had uh, the contribution from Bruce Miller that pointed out uh, how antiquated the rules were. And uh, Andrew Kingsmill also pointed out that, you know, if you're Snowy 2, uh, it doesn't look like the link from uh, Snowy to Melbourne, the really big path, is, is going to be ready by the time uh, Snowy 2 is, is open. And, you know, we're seeing in this uh, Q&I upgrade for 200 megawatts at best, 
uh, of the preferred option that the uh, an increase yeah. to a 500 kilovolt line requires a whole new RIT process that will take years and years more. So I still feel the whole planning uh, and rule system is completely and utterly hopeless. It is completely utterly hopeless. And yeah, in transcript lang language on, on, on those AMC rules, and particularly as they affect synchronous condensers, and what we've seen in New South Wales, for those who didn't read the article, was that basically almost every solar and wind farm is being asked to install these things at about $20 million a pop. And transcript points out that, one, that's a pretty dumb idea because they're not necessarily put where they're needed. Two, they might not be switched on. And three, if they were all switched on, then it's probably going to add to the complexity of actually managing the grid. So... So Giles, just, just, today, just today I read uh, an email from, from AEMC advertising a forum in Melbourne to talk about the transmission reform process uh, and, all that, and the head of the email is called minimising the costs and risks uh, you know, of new transmission. I mean, it's so the opposite of what, where it should be minimising the costs and risks of the electricity system falling over. Uh, by installing as much new transmission as we need as fast as possible. And another thing that I think is, uh, you know, these synchronous condensers are such old school technology. Where is Australia on the modern power electronics way of actually developing this? Where is the money that's uh, going into this? Uh, you know, it's the... AEMO has a lot to, to blame and, and, and let's be honest Giles, we don't really understand anything about the complexities of managing all the transmission and, and I have no doubt it's an extremely complex system that's very difficult to model and adding new generation units on uh, you know, would, would, would tax anyone but a real expert uh, uh, but that said um, uh, so the AMC could do a lot better on the rules process and the federal government could weigh in a little bit to help you know uh, they yes. really could I mean well I think and that's one of the problems is, is that um, I mean Stian's been talking about China and China's been trying to lead from the um, you know their direction comes top down um, and they supposedly have these sort of you know long-term goals but in Australia we just don't have anything at the moment and I think that's a real impediment because if we did have a government that was going top down like here's a vision we're transforming we're transitioning let's get on with it then I think you actually see some action as you as, as we have we've got an energy minister who's perfectly happy to sort of you know walk in front of the you know the automobile with a big red flag just in case it scares the horses and um, slow it down as much as possible and look just to finish off I think it's going to be interesting to see um, Angus Taylor is actually making an appearance at the AFR Energy Summit next week so it'll be interesting to see if he's got anything to say I don't think um, so um, and, um, and some of the other big players and well, let, let's leave it there. And uh, the other yes. thing I want to mention is the New South Wales government uh, uh, did announce its funding this week and uh, which projects are going to get approved in the uh, for the water use. And there's a, a bunch of uh, uh, pumped hydro projects there that are going to get progressed uh, forward. Um, and about uh, 14 battery storage projects. And um, yes. So what I would like to see from the New South Wales government, though, six months after the election, is that they get on with uh, the residential program that they talked about uh, of interest-free loans for solar and batteries. I've got a personal interest in that program, and I'm astonished that after six months, there still isn't uh, the slightest detail of how you can actually apply for one. I think they've actually scrapped that idea, but let me get back to you on that one. I can't remember. We did actually have a story about that, and I think they've actually taken the money from those loan schemes and put it into that emerging storage thing. But um, let me get back. Hey, um, Stian, um, you're still on the line, I hope. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, really great to catch up. Great to get your perspective um, from China. Really good to get you know, some, some good commentary about carbon markets, because we do forget that they do exist. And um, I'll maybe catch up in Glasgow next year. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Hope to see you there.
Good on you. Thank you very much. And thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. And I hope all our listeners uh, uh, are enjoying uh, the electricity business. (laughs) (laughs) And this podcast. Thank you very much to our sponsors once again, Evergen and Solaray Energy. And bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.